0: welcome to the podcast of ideas in mid-october at the barbican in central london we hosted the 14th of our annual battle of ideas festivals bigger and with a more diverse range of topics than ever before The festival hosted 450 speakers on over 100 panels, attracting an audience of about three and a half thousand people across the weekend, all keen to explore, understand and debate the important issues of our time. We covered everything from the ethics of surrogacy to drill music, debates about identity in sport and discussions around the moral responsibility of the artist. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be uploading audio and video from these discussions, so watch out for new posts on this podcast and our YouTube channel. This week, we're giving you our final session in the keynote controversy strand. Is free speech a fiction in conversation with Lionel Shriver? The Academy of Ideas director Claire Fox is introducing Lionel and chairing the discussion.
1: Good afternoon, uh, uh, everybody. This is the last keynote controversy. Um, For those who I haven't met, I'm Claire Fox, and I'm the director of the Academy of Ideas. And it gives me great privilege to do this in conversation with Lionel Shriver. Now, Lionel, I have to say, without being ridiculous, I'm so nervous it's ridiculous. Um, And it is like... Don't you believe her. I know, but it's really true. I've, I've already had to ask Lionel what are the name of two of the characters in one of the short stories, because I'd forgotten. The reason why I'm nervous is because I read Lionel regularly in terms of her journalism, and I kind of have, you know, fist pump in the air every time I read her. Um, but you're also a guilty secret, because when I tell other people that, they look at me abhorred, right? So your kind of reputation goes for you. But... Lionel Shriver, let me introduce her formally, is a writer and journalist, an award-winning and well-acclaimed novelist. Her novels include the NYT bestsellers The Post Birthday Party, so much for that. The Mondeebs, a family, uh, 2029 to 2047, was in the Sunday Times top 10 bestseller list. She obviously wrote that book for which she's uh, very well known. We need to talk about Kevin, 2005 Orange Prize winner, but has written lots before and subsequently that I think makes her one of our finest uh, novelists today and her latest book is called Property a theme collections of stories and two novellas and as I say she also writes on issues to do with culture and the arts and politics and has become somebody who has been able to expose and talk about some of the big cultural controversies of our day and I wanted to talk to Lionel about both her, uh, her new collection of, of stories, uh, property, and also to weave into that a discussion about uh, free speech in particular, but just the broader issues of our time uh, for which she's always got interesting things to say. So first of all, give her a warm welcome. Right. So. I'm also at the end of the festival moment, so I'm not quite entirely on top of my game, as they say. Right. I absolutely... Uh, and I didn't know if I would. Um, so, just to be honest, I thought, you know, a collection of stories on property. I thought, oh. Um, and I thought... I wasn't sure what I was going to think, and I was thinking, well, that's a bit anxiety-inducing. I'm about to do an in-conversation with her, and I don't know what it'd be like. Anyway, luckily, I love it. So that's a happy story.
2: But... One of the things I wanted to start off with you... It's okay, I I, I think we should just all admit that everyone hates short stories. (laughs) And I don't want to talk about form,
1: because I think in one interview you pointed out that there's nothing more boring than saying, can we discuss short stories versus novels? But um, what I thought was fascinating about this, and it made me really think about it, was what we own, the property we own, becomes part of our identity, and who we are, and how much where we live matters... It's, uh, I think, a kind of projection of ourself. And in some ways, the issues and the themes in this collection made me think about identity politics, about territory, about marking your space, about who's allowed in, how you see yourself. So just to initially get going, do you want to kind of just reflect on some of the themes as you were
2: writing the, uh,
1: the stories? or
2: but you're doing such a good job. <laughs> you just keep talking. Um, yeah, I'm very interested in issues of territory. That means I'm necessarily interested in uh, matters like immigration. Um, but I also enjoy uh, territory on uh, an incredibly petty level. So um, I really get my back up when the neighbor's cats uh, poop in my back garden. This is a territorial issue, um, a right to roam my ass. And I, because we tend to project ourselves onto what we own, both the, both the objects and, um, and acreage, uh, it, it, we feel that when people um, don't respect the boundaries of our possessions, that they're not respecting us, and I, I think you um, you'll find that uh, people who've been robbed, who've been burgled, will often tell you that uh, they feel violated, and that's the kind of language that we would use. You know, th- that your your body has been injured, and I, th- I think that's part of the experience of having yourself robbed, having yourself tra- trampled, and. The, the the boundaries that you draw around yourself uh, penetrated. And it, that's why it's so emotional. And it, doesn't, it often doesn't have that much to do with what the burglars actually stole. Now, one of the short stories is um, a fantastic
1: short story co- uh, called Domestic Terrorism, and it's about a son who refuses to leave home. Now, there'll be uh, various people in the audience for whom... Uh, they are the person who refuses to leave home, and then others who are thinking, "Oh, that I must rush off and read it anyway." And it's called domestic terrorism, but actually, um, it's a fantastically. When the I, I don't want to ruin the story, but one one of the things is the son who refuses to leave home ends up camping outside and creating a new movement and it's a bit like a kind of uh, youth movement and there's kind of people come along and support him and all the rest of it. But of course it, ha- it immediately made you think of kind of refugee camps but also safe spaces and, and so on and I suppose the entitlement of young people in some ways. Anyway, it's a, f- I mean, it's a brilliant uh, story but what, were you, what kind of issues were you interested in in relation to that story?
2: Well... Uh, A lot of reviewers didn't pick it up but there is threaded through that story just in little bits what's going on on the television news in the background. Um, It's in 2015 and it's during the European migration crisis. And uh, I I try not to be too explicit about the parallels because I want you to pick it up yourselves. But... uh, uh, the idea is uh first of all it's it's looking at the strength of weakness um that is the the very powerlessness of both uh both the refugees and the young man who is in in an and has no skills and can't really survive by himself in the world that that weakness is what gives them power uh to to com- to command compassion. Um, and the other thing it's looking at is, is much more practical, and that is the importance of physical presence and the way in which when someone has arrived on your territory, they're really hard to get rid of. The, f- the fact that they are physically there becomes a physical problem. I mean, after all, deportation if we're going to keep it to the immigration thing, deportation is very expensive. It's practically difficult to collect these people, and they often come back. Um, so do sons who, <laughs> who leave home. So, and that's one of the things that the, uh, the parents have to deal with is how physically difficult it is to remove their son from their home. And in fact, after I wrote that story, there was a real case in, uh, somewhere in New York State where some real parents took their son to court. You're nodding. You you uh, you followed that story. Um, I, I had people. I, I had that sent to me in email over and over again because it was, it was so weird. You know, life imitating art. Um, and they won. But I always wondered whether they end up ended up having to call the bailiffs to have the son removed because he didn't want to go even when he lost the case. I wanted to kind of, I'm going to come back on
1: some of the issues around immigration and sort of more explicit or more political issues in a minute. But uh, one of the things um, I wanted to talk to you about by way of obviously introducing a lot of people will know that you caused uh, a a huge kerfuffle around uh, uh, cultural appropriation. And I know that you didn't intend to, you you know, you, you hoped to make a speech that would kind of, you know, put rid of it as it were, and its inf- its malign influence on literature. But actually, it became itself a centre of the culture wars. Your very speech. But I, I wanted to just uh, introduce that, and then we can kind of go on to talk more about the politics by talking about the subletter, because uh, the subletter is um, actually my favourite story in in the collection.
2: Oh, I'm so happy to hear that my editor hated that. All oh, right. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I. I, I um, but what I was going to
1: say was, the, char- the main character in the subletter is an American, and it was the physical presence thing you just made, but anyway, it's an American living in Northern Ireland. So I'm, I, I'm basically fairly familiar with Northern Irish politics, and I would have been on the other side of the politics of the subletter, who is American but sympathetic to... The uh, loyalist cause. No, no, no. I know. All right. So I'm going to get this wrong. These words are in Northern Ireland, and this is what I was going to say was, and therefore I found myself correcting your words when I was reading it. But why this is significant is because I shouldn't have been able to empathise with that character. You know, politically, this is a character that, on paper, I would have nothing to agree with on, and all the rest of it. Anyway, I absolutely lived and breathed the dilemma of that character and in other words you forced me as a writer to wear as it were the hat of that character right and to think about northern irish politics in a way i hadn't thought about it even though i was involved in it for many years and and we might not agree on that but it was more the role of literature in making you suddenly be a different person and I, and I suppose that's what I wanted to ask you about cultural appropriation. One of the things about these stories, especially when you read lots of stories, is I became embroiled in the lives of so many people who I would never understand their dilemmas unless I was reading. And I think that is probably what is at stake, is it not, in this whole row about cultural appropriation. That you are, we are denying people the right to, or you know, if you say keep to your lane, only describe lives yeah. that you live, or, and so on. But do you just want to kind of reflect on that in terms of your writing of different characters' dilemmas and what you think about that whole issue?
2: Well, I do think it's very important for fiction writers to be able to write about people other than themselves. Um, uh, when I was in school, what uh, beginning writers were primarily criticized for, and often justly, was they wrote too much about themselves. And um, fiction writers in general have uh, uh, often acquired a well-earned reputation for uh, being self-obsessed and putting the reader through all their own private anxieties and dilemmas and not really extending themselves to the world. Um, And while I I sometimes use my life as inspiration, that's generally not been... um, a problem with my work, uh, and I don't. I, I hate the idea uh, that we should tell writers coming up that they may only write about their own race, their own ethnicity, their own nationality, their own gender, um, their own sexual preference. Uh, it's uh, it's not in the interest of the writer uh, as an artist, and it's not in the interest of the readership. Furthermore, there's this this constant um contradiction whereby, you know, fiction writers get criticized or uh, for not uh f- for for cultural appropriation and then then if you d- do as you're told and only write about uh yourself and say your your fellow white people, um you're not re- representing the diverse world and uh and, you know, you're some kind of throwback who sets everything in the 1950s. And I, you can't win. Um, I mean, the, the the fact is that uh, a lot of my work um, and even my life is one giant act of cultural appropriation. I have lived in the UK for the better part of 30 years, and I have stolen your nation. And um, about half of the... Um, about half of the stories in this collection are set in Britain, so I have a vested interest in um, in the right to filch what doesn 't belong to me
1: and also it 's interesting because just for example, in that subletter story it 's also about when we talk about people kind of feeling at home in a country and welcoming people who are not originally from a place, so this is an American moving to uh, the north of Ireland and so on, that actually you want people to want to understand what's going on in that society and to get into the... I mean, if you kind of a standoffish and kind of have some uh, anthropological observation rather than getting into it, this character actually falls in love with the place.
2: Yes, I mean, the setup in the subletter is that uh, the main character has been living in Belfast for many years. And, you know, um, the Northern Irish are very... Pro- They're very possessive of not just the place, but their problems. And um, this was intensely the case while the troubles were ongoing. And uh, with outsiders, it was pretty universal on both sides of the sectarian divide that uh, they did not believe that some uh, uppity American coming in um, had any understanding of their terrible difficulties so um, much like uh, the uh, the character in the story I myself apprenticed myself to uh, northern Ireland's terrible difficulties and became fairly fluent Um, and uh, one of the things that I noticed when I was living in Belfast is when other Americans would come in and there were a lot of Americans that came through that town um I resented them; they were on my territory, and I wanted them to go away and i wasn 't very nice to them and they weren 't very nice to me and I kind of caught myself on, which is a good northern Irish expression, and realized how farcical it was so this uh This novella that ends the conclusion it ends, ends the collection is about two American women, one more recently arrived who end up sharing a flat um, over the uh, initial woman's dead body. Um, And they're competing with each other, not just about the territory of the actual flat, but also over Northern Ireland and over who really understands the place. And the, the irony should not be lost on the reader that these are people fighting, both fighting over a place that conspicuously doesn't belong to them.
1: Um, I want to now s- s- slightly move into the kind of the, 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 the politics of some of these things, but particularly in terms of uh, writers. so one of the things that i 've become um, uh, slightly obsessed about over, uh, over the last year or so is sensitivity readers um, and for those of you who don 't know what they are, this is a, a, a new As you you know, if you want a job, your youth, this is one for you. So you can basically, publishers and indeed more and more writers are employing sensitivity readers to read their work pre-publishing to make sure that it accurately depicts the particular identity I mean, if you can imagine what this is like. So you basically give your novel that has an Afro-Caribbean character to an Afro-Caribbean identity writer, who then sensitively reads it. I mean, they're sensitive, and then come back and tell you where you've got it wrong, as though one sensitivity reader from an Afro-Caribbean will understand everything. Anyway, you know, this goes on, and I, I wanted to ask you about the fact that this, to me, is a betrayal of imagination
2: of fiction but it's becoming institutionalized more and more publishers yes. are doing
1: it. And I know well it
2: started out in uh, young adult fiction and I think it is starting to spread. I predicted when, when they did that that it was going to spread to mainstream fiction and I think that that is gradually happening. Um, nobody has yet uh, at HarperCollins quite had the nerve to um, force me to use a sensitivity reader. Um, that would be an interesting interchange <laughs> well, but i you know I think that it uh, one of the things that's indicative of is the fearfulness of the culture right now um, because uh, publishers are terrified that they're going to offend someone or they're going to publish something that's offensive, and it will be bad press, and you know the editor's going to get fired or you know taken to task on twitter I mean, it's it's uh so we're cl- we're trying to cleanse books of any spikiness any anything that might not reflect well on the various minorities that are, are represented in the story and um you know good luck to them anyway because when someone wants to when a reader wants to take offense they always take offense it doesn't matter how, how uh, sanitized uh the 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 work is um there's the Domestic terrorism, that story we talked about earlier about uh, the son that wouldn't leave. uh, He has a black girlfriend. Um, Now I realize I've become something of a target uh, for identity politics people and so perhaps my experience is not um, perfectly typical of what happens when a white writer uh, includes a minor black character. But that minor character has had every single line of dialogue uh, uh, gone through with a fine-tooth comb uh, in repeatedly in reviews, usually by, uh, reviews by younger people who are trying to find something uh, offensive in it, something wrong, something stereotypical. Uh, and, of course, they found them uh, be- because they were looking for them. So, you know, I think... Since we're in that place, uh, it's a w- it, the exercise is a waste of time. But it, I suppose it also talks to the
1: fact. I mean, I, I, I think it's true that the Swedish publisher um, was um, re- didn't want to publish the Mondives because it was kind it's of the mandibles. The mandibles. Sorry, the mandibles. Uh, it's because, been a long day. No, it's been a long day. Um, because. It's an absolutely fascinating novel, but there's a uh, uh, um, sub-story in relation to immigration. And and, and what I wanted to ask you is there's a huge amount, I presume, of kind of like there are taboo topics as well. I mean, you've... Absolutely, yeah. And how do you... I mean, I I think that that can't be good when fiction feels it can't explore everything and anything. On those taboo topics, if you feel the pressure, presumably... Other people feel it much worse, but is that getting worse? Do you think
2: oh I don't think there's any question that uh the the anxiety I- is is going through the roof, and it's not just a um a problem with writers. I think that we're developing a a larger social atmosphere in which we're all nervous about talking to each other uh we're uh honestly. Uh, I don't think this—that I'm—that that, I don't think it's only me. I think that if you, if uh, if we're in a mixed race party, for example, I think there's a decreased tendency to go talk to somebody who's of another race, and it's not out of racism; it's out of this super sensitivity. It's out of this terror that you will say something wrong. And uh, it's a it's a kind of uh, it, we've instilled a a self mistrust, especially in white people. This this worry that there's going to be some new rule, and they'll not have heard of it, and th- they'll they'll use the wrong word for something, and 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 embarrass themselves, and and, and uh, create some kind of scene. And and I think there is increasingly a, a kind of self segregation socially uh, often perhaps on an unconscious level uh, where it's just you know I've had a couple drinks I'm going to play it safe I'm going to talk to uh, Carol over there we know each other and I'm not going to get myself into trouble. Well on on that kind of uh, walking on eggshells in terms of language
1: actually we started the festival with a keynote discussion on that very thing about how language is being politicized and weaponized in lots of ways but there was a very funny example with, well, I mean, tragic in a way, that the Welcome Collection of Fine Institution, oh, the, women thing. the women, which we can't pronounce, so it's WIM XN to replace women, which was an example of an institution I assume trying to be inclusive. I mean, they kind of wandered in, blunder in without knowing what they were doing. Welcome Trust are really good on science, identity politics are no good on, and gender are completely hopeless on. Anyway, so they kind of come up with this phrase, WIM XN. And everybody writes, what are you talking about? But it made, all the time, there's these language games where you kind of, people trying to find new words and then demanding you use those words and so on.
2: Yeah, I think I, um, that's one of the things that gets my back up more than anything because I don't like to be told uh, what words to use. Uh, that's my, that, my occupation depends on my being able to use whatever words I want. And I, I hate the imposition of... Um, a, a very set vocabulary, and then everyone starts using the same words over. I mean, I'm so sick of the word "privileged." I couldn't tell you, and um, and uh, a lot of these words are used in a devious Orwellian way. That um, that word "normalize." We mustn't normalize this. Well, it's that's just a smokescreen for censorship, right? Or for bossing people around. So it may be it may be technically illegal. It may be technically legal for you to do something or say something, but we shouldn't allow you to do it anyway because then we'll normalize it. Um, and you know, a lot of the language is ugly. This whole thing of making uh, messing with pronouns, uh, which I think is just not going to stick. I, think it, uh, the, I don't remember what they're called, but linguistically, there are certain words that are so. Primitive to the language that you'll you'll never be successful in changing them, and pronouns are one of them um, and i i just uh I hate people all people sounding alike and using the same language, and you know it's also it's a- it's a code it's right a code, yeah. it's a code so you're sending out a signal its as you know if I were to sit here and tell you that i'm I'm really anxious to uh, about uh, m- my status as, as a p- privileged white woman, then you know lots of other things about me. I've, you know, it's like we're wearing the T-shirt. Um, I belong to a particular political set, uh, and that's what that's what those words are for, more than anything. And then the other thing, therefore, are to, are to exercise power, and therefore to say, right, you can't. Uh, you know, you can't say minorities anymore. You have to say people of color. And it's, it, it is truly astonishing how quickly everyone gets with the program. In fact, it's creepy.
1: So, um, I mean, I, when I heard people of color the first time, I actually thought it sounded marginally, I mean, it sounded like a bit like, Racist, even it was like. a Well, you know, y- if you thing. say
2: "colored people" instead, you know, you get your head cut off. So I thought
1: people people of color will never uh, take off. And then one of the speakers last year, uh, uh, Cunley, who was on one of the panels. He said, "I hate that phrase, people of color." And then the next. Oh, that was maybe two years ago. And then la- last year, I remember starting off saying, people of color. I thought, I'm doing it. Because you know that that's the language, the words you need to know in order to say to people, it's all right, I understand it's LGBTQ now and all the rest right. of it, right? And as you say, you, but it makes you uh, a conformist, but in bad faith. Because it's not, you're, you're kind of trying to follow it so you don't fall foul of somebody calling you well, a bigot. Well, that's one of the
2: things that's creepy about it. Because it's one big arse lick, Right. <laughs> it is it's it's oh i am you know i'm really good and i'm i've got with the program and oh oh i'm okay i'll use that word yes yes i will um it's it's so i i actually you know it's this is the it it is um it's a kind of hoop jumping that is demanded of people and it's it's degrading actually it's humiliating uh, to suddenly have to use a new a, a, a new way of talking about people because because you've picked it up, you know, in the atmosphere that that, that uh, uh, you know you're not saying African American anymore; you're saying people of color. And the one of the things that is icky about it is that nobody ever talks about it directly. Nobody ever ad- never ever addresses this shift of vocabulary it's all uh it's all subtext we don't have an article coming out in the paper announcing that this is our new vocabulary i i it's there's something i mean you know it's it's slavishly conformist and um bending over backwards to please and it's also uh, entirely, despite it's
1: um, uh, uh, a declaration of being inclusionary, it also effectively means that millions and millions of people in this country are excluded from the conversation because the majority of people in this country do not know the code. First of all, as you say, it's not written down. Second, they've gone nowhere near a university campus recently, and even if they were not all of university students know it, but they haven't, they haven't hung out in the right... C- I and think then for the most part, one, they, of the th- yeah.
2: one of the things they have picked up is that there is a code. Okay, even if they don't know it. And when I was talking about, you know, your typical Britain, middle class, white at a party, that's what I mean. That is why people are 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 pulling back from each other and not reaching out uh to communicate with people who are different from them because because they're afraid they don't know the code. But I, I it was the Fire Brigade Union
1: somebody in the fire brigade union sent me a document about Diversity and inclusion in the fire service. Oh, that's another word I can't stand. I can't say,
2: I I cannot listen
1: to diversity anymore. (laughs) Well, they sent this document and it was like tyrannical in what it was demanding of people who were entering the fire service in terms of language and so on and so forth. And it was like this you know, you can just see that here these people are, they're trying to put fires out and there's kind of people seriously wandering around policing their language and trying to tell them about these codes and all the rest of it. And you couldn't that make the, it up. You couldn't make it up. On, on language, though, I and mean, it's kind of corruption, I mean, the other thing that seems to me to have happened is, is that, well, I mean, I mean, apart from the fact that you can't sometimes believe these things, you know, that senior police officer from the Met who's been disciplined for using the phrase whiter than white. Um, uh, 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 I mean, I really... Uh, but that, well, that was... He, he, you know, when he's trying to say we as the police should behave impeccably, we should be whiter than white, it has been reported for uh, using racist language. There are, and, 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 but there's also kind of like the way metaphors have gone mad. I mean, you know, Chuka and Muna, uh, calling on Corbyn supporters to, uh, you know, call off the dogs, and then people start saying, you're saying we're like dogs. And uh, the uh, uh, Boris Johnson and the kind of, you know, what everyone thinks about, the burqa and comparing it to the letterbox. And then people saying, he's saying that uh, uh, Muslim women are letterboxes. And it's like, no, he's not, really. Um, and, um, but, but actually, seriously, though, in terms of being a writer, one wants to enrich the language and have a sense of metaphor and simile and all of these things. I mean, talk about being over-literal. I mean, it, this is just terribly destructive, I would have thought, this kind of culture.
2: Yeah, and it's it's boring. You know, it it uh it it's very flattening. Um and it makes people sound like robots. And it if you read some of this social media back and forth, it's uh it has a a kind of soviet texture of of um you know, always speaking well of the party. And uh the odd thing is that we're dealing with often with a generation that isn't very alert to what happened in the Soviet Union, much less uh, alert to uh, what happened in the 1950s in Mac- McCarthyite America. And so, when you say, you know, this really sounds Soviet to me, it's just like blank. It makes no impact.
1: Yeah, actually, I've I really noticed that as well. But um, just on the just you said about diversity just for those of you who don't know you've obviously uh, in again got into some controversy in relation to your criticism of uh, penguin random house in terms of uh, what happened with them and diversity was at the heart of that but why don't you tell that story and kind of the reaction to it and the responses which uh, some of us were following but not everyone will know
2: well, someone sent me a, um, an email and accompanying questionnaire that was sent out by Penguin Random House Publishers to the agents of all of their authors. And um, the questionnaire was all about uh, whether or not uh, the author was mem- a membership of any of these standard protective groups. You know, they wanted to know what... your whether you were transgender or um um uh what race you were uh whether you or whether you were straight all that stuff okay um but it was the email um proudly declared that Pen- penguin random house first off was not going to have any educational requirements for the hiring of their staff forthwith, no educational requirements whatsoever. And I wasn't quite sure whether that indicted Penguin Random House or the level of education in this country, that it so much doesn't matter. Um, And um, then they also announced that by 2025, they wanted to have uh, both their staff and their authors list perfectly reflect the um, statistical proportions in the UK population uh, in relation to gender, ethnicity, race, uh, sexual preference, uh, disability—have I missed one? Oh, in class. Now that's a hell of an algorithm. Um, and I would hate to have all those different categories on my mind when I was reading a, a submitted manuscript, trying to decide whether to buy it. And uh, so I, I did a, I did a a spectator column on what i found to be fundamentally hilarious uh and and i made fun of it and i think the um the line that got me into the most trouble uh i guess it sounded it 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 made up a kind of composite character um you know who would be you know transgender and and caribbean and and uh, powering around on a mobility scooter um and, and per, suppose that regardless of how poor uh, the manuscript was, they would be obliged to publish it just because it would tick so many boxes. And, um, and especially taken out of context, even taken out of context, that line did not say anything pejorative about any group. And it took me a long time to figure out what was wrong with it. It was funny. <laughs> you don't make jokes around diversity, Right? So and uh, there's a a spectator has a paywall and I think that may have contributed to my being misinterpreted but I think some of the um, misinterpretation was malicious uh, because in short order what I had said um, I was making the point that even if we do uh, try to have more diversity institutions need to be um, mindful of what their primary purpose is so that Penguin Random House's purpose can't be to be diverse. They're supposed to be publishing books that people want to buy and read. Um, and I, I also brought the uh, the example of the London um, Cycling com- Commissioner who had that week declared that his primary purpose was to uh, make sure that uh, cycling was no longer uh, such a white, male, middle-class activity. I thought that was so weird. Um, But this message quickly spun into Lionel Shriver as a white supremacist. And (laughs) isn't it interesting how quickly we get there? Um, And uh, wants to protect publishing for uh, herself and her fellow white people. And she thinks that uh, people uh, uh, in these other categories can't write. And I, it is bizarre how how the how you how quickly one loses control of one's own message. I think one of the things that's that's happening in the social media world is that uh, it's one big game of telephone. So very quickly, it's it you know you didn't say what you said, you you said what they say you said there's a big difference. And what that means is that regardless of how well you articulate an argument, how uh, clearly you qualify it, uh, how precise you are with the language in an original piece of writing, uh, you don't control your own message. It gets reiterated badly and then reiterated badly again. And, And suddenly, yeah, you're a white supremacist and uh I think this is commonplace. I think that that uh that the technology we're using uh has a has a tendency um to repeat and to distort, and what that means is that um people are able to distort uh, a good argument into a stupid argument, and it's one big exercise in straw manning because you know. Then everybody gets to feel all all uh, sanctimonious about the fact that you know white supremacism is bad. Oh great, thanks. I mean, I, I think that I, no, but I think that loss of control of your own message
1: is the most scary thing that I think happens at the moment.
2: It's especially disturbing for a writer. I mean, That's the whole. I mean, I, I when I write a a, a column, um, I hope it has a a flow and a and a lightness, but I didn't just dash it off. And at a certain point, I I start wondering, well, why do I bother? You know, why don't I just dash it off? Because people read what they want to.
1: Yeah, and 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 it also means that you, uh, you know, one of the things you have to trace things back because I kind of picked up on that story about you as it emerged on Twitter, by the time you'd become a white supremacist. So, you, you, uh, But, I, but I, I had to then go back to find out what happened, because I know that you weren't, or I suspected you weren't, but I wanted to know what you'd said. That had le- so you go back, right, it took a bit of time, you know, because you're tracking back, right? And um, so then you track back and you're trying to think, have I missed a link because at no point, you know, and all that sort of thing. But of course, most people won't track back. They're retweeting the white supremacist point. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you're, 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 you've, you've moved on. And what I think is uh, revolting about it is that when you then talk to people, they are, they are repeating, having discussion with people about it. I used it as an example in a speech recently on free speech to some young people. I was trying to explain how losing control of the message did this. And, and then people were saying, well, yeah, but, you know... You know and there 's this sort of like yes, but you know you 're just being an apologist for her and then and then we got very quickly into um unconscious bias. So my unconscious bias towards white supremacism meant that I was reading your article in a particular way and I'd misunderstood what they saw in it, which was white supremacy and that, you know what I mean? Anyway, I kind of got, I, I kind of was having this conversation. I just thought, I'm going mad. I don't know what to do. <laughs> and I basically ended up emailing your article to one of the organizers because I suddenly thought, you have nobody nobody's read the article. Nobody has read this article. Therefore, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So, it's almost why I wanted you to tell that story, because I thought, I don't want to start telling that story because it's been set through so many versions of everyone else's. But it's really a, a daunting prospect to have political discourse with this going on, in all seriousness. We're not going to be able to ever say anything if people are going to steal our stories source us and throw it back at us. But it is horrible being called a bigot in the end, isn't it? You know, it
2: doesn't affect me anymore. Oh, right, there you go. Uh, if this if is one it, of it affects w- me. Um, this, I actually, I did another column on this subject. Um, the first time I uh, realized that uh, there were some people who were accusing me of being a racist, I, I was really angry. Um, and I, I actually made the mistake once of... <laughs> trying to demonstrate just how much i wasn't one never do that never 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 um the more you try to explain how you're not a racist the more bigoted you sound it's so weird and it happens every time um you just dig yourself in a hole um and the truth is you can't prove a negative anyway so give up now you know if someone call now if someone calls me a racist or even a white supremacist it doesn't phase me i mean we we throw these words around with such abandon now um it it's like a Ann and the or tree or dog i just it's it it's losing you know that accusation is losing any punch um and uh one of the things that you'll find very consistently is that the people who are now being called Racists and white supremacists, since, oh, by the way, that, that very word inflation is, a, is indicative that r- racist doesn't pack a punch anymore. We moved, uh, we moved to white supremacist" like that, because racist wasn't, r- wasn't working anymore.
1: That if, they call, if people call you these words, but they're thrown around with gay abandon, uh, gay abandon.
2: <laughs> Can you say that?
1: <laughs> no one <laughs> is to tweet that or I'm going to end up getting done. <laughs> I suddenly thought, as I said it, oh, is that allowed now? That's what happens. That's what happens. You start wandering around saying
2: stupid things, thinking, oh, no. Uh, I remembered where I was, though. Yeah, right. The people who get called racist these days are, n- are not the conspicuous racist. Um, after all, if you call a white supremacist a white supremacist, they say, you betcha. That White supremacists are... Proud, they believe that whites are are better than anyone else, and they walk around in T-shirts. I mean, literally. Um, it is much more fun to uh, attack people who are ideologically very close to you, and so and and so I think that that the accusations of bigotry are mostly aimed at fellow liberals. Ideally. They're aimed at fellow liberals who are a little bit older. It's often a generational hunting game. So that's the last thing
1: before I go out to the audience, uh, the generational issue. So I, um, w- when I uh, wrote my little book, I find that offensive. I- I've been kind of accused of having popularized the term generation snowflake uh, in this country, which... Um, uh, I I did, there is undoubtedly, and there has been at this festival, there are sometimes generational tensions. And you've made the point already that, you know, for many young people, if you sort of say it's Soviet or, you know, if you sort of say McCarthyite, everybody kind of looks at you, you know, nobody knows what you're talking about for a start. um, it's, It's hard to kind of describe the. The sense of history is not, is not as strong amongst younger people, let's put it that way. And it's this generation of young people. It's not every young person has never understood history. It's a particular thing of now. But that generation was is very difficult to get over without being like middle-aged woman moaning about generation snowflake and entitlement amongst young people. Luckily, many young people, and many young people who are here, are as irritated by their peers as, the, uh, as anyone else. But there is a generational thing, isn't there? And it, it is it's palpable, the Me Too thing and feminism and, you know, a lot of young women seem to be terrorised and have very intolerant. A lot of older feminists or women's rights advocates not as kind of freaked out by some of the, uh, the things on Me Too. You know what I mean? So reflect on any of that and then I'll go out to the audience to see if they want to ask you. Anything.
2: Well, I... Th- um There are different ways of working your way up in one's career, and uh, I would say the more standard way of doing so would be to ingratiate yourself with people who are older and more powerful. Um, Get them to like you, and maybe they'll give you opportunities. But there's a more modern way of doing it, and that is you have them, uh, at least in a career sense, taken out and that means there's an opening at the top th- there's a, a way to move up and um, it also in the very process of having someone taken out uh, you attract attention to yourself and advance your own interests and that seems to be uh, one model for this uh, upcoming generation uh, which is uh, it's it's uh, it's more efficient than the ingratiation model which um requires a great deal of of cunning and sometimes talent um and likability whereas it, the uh, the more uh, homicidal model <laughs> only requires viciousness and uh, the ingratiation where it does occur
1: is actually the other way round which is it tends to be Institutions that are worried they're male, pale, stale, and a bit old actually sycophantically ingratiating themselves with the young in order to give them some cred points. Um, I actually find that that's a real betrayal of young people because it means kind of like sick, you know, it kind of means groveling to them and never looking in the, in the eye. And it's undignified, of, it's undignified, but it also just means that you abandon them to where they're at, instead of using your substantial power and maybe insight to possibly help them understand the world
2: better. I think one of the things that has most accelerated the ill effects of uh, identity politics and um, social media, trial by social media, is the cowardice of mainstream institutions, uh, which are going along with it, are ditching due process. I mean... uh, I just met with uh Ian Baruma at, at Cheltenham and uh he was until very recently the uh the editor-in-chief of the New York Review of Books, distinguished publication and he lost his job because he ran a, an essay that was a, a by one of the victims of the Me Too movement. Um it, by the way, it wasn't the best essay in the world, but it was, I guarantee you it's interesting. I was glad to be able to read something by someone who's been on the other end of these accusations, even though he didn't come across as that appealing a person, that, which was itself interesting. Um, but uh, both in, in in Twitter and and at university presses, there was a great outcry that this uh, this essay should never have been published and uh, Ian Baruma was out on his ear. Now, that is institutional cowardice. You know, all the publisher had to do was um, hold his nerve and wait for it to die down, and and everything would have been fine. But no, there was this feeling, oh, we've got to do something, and he capitulated to outside pressure.
1: And it's incredible because Ian Baruma was, is, not was, is one of, you know, a foremost... Uh, erudite public intellectual, who is doing the New York Review of Books some great good and actually opening it up to a greater number of diverse voices. That's what's so ironic about it. You know, it's kind of shaking. Well, this it is up. The,
2: this is what exactly what I was talking about. It's a good example of that kind of um, the, our modern day version of hunting, where the real trophies are the ones they're like you. They're very ideologically um, akin, and. Those are the people that it's satisfying to take out—not real opponents, not real, you know, not real ideological opponents, but people who are just right next door to you.
1: Fascinating. Okay. Any uh, points on the floor? Now I'm going to take sort of three or four points, and then anything you want to pick up, rather than right. So uh, actually, just just there. Sorry, um, people with the microphone. I know I always make you run. Right, that that lady there. Yeah. yeah
0: a couple of years ago, you were expressing concern about. Uh, self-censorship in you know relation to all of this and the, the fact that people would be tempted to uh, to do that and I just wondered whether um I I don't think anyone would think that you were somebody that were was afraid of the outcome but I wonder whether you're ever tempted to self-censor because you just can't be bothered to deal with all of the Crap that you have to deal with. Basically, you just want to get on with the business of writing, and it's a distraction. And that in itself is quite worrying if it were the case. But also, um, is it possible to successfully self-censor when you've got to um, negotiate this really perilous terrain of uh, tricky vocabulary? Can, I, can we? Yeah, can uh, we?
1: You, you answer that one quickly, and then the person behind you. Yeah.
2: It's possible, but I'm not very good at it. <laughs> uh, a very good example is uh, I was in the states for the Kavanaugh hearings, and my reaction was uh, although I am a Democrat uh, capital D was not orthodox <laughs> and I so I had a kind of one reaction and then a reaction after after that is this uh, Christine Blasey Ford uh, testimony just doesn't wow me and then I thought you better shut up you better not write that oh, I couldn't help myself <laughs> It was my next spectator column. One of the things that, that, that does get me into trouble with this stuff is I need an idea to write about. And that's what's in my head. And, you know, it's due on Monday. And I don't have another idea. So <laughs> I'm, going the, I'm going to write the piece that's going to get me into trouble. But I, you know, I am not immune to anxiety on my own account. And uh, I think my husband walks around in a, in a state of constant terror.
3: So I, I found it quite interesting, the point you made about institutional cowardice. I think there is definitely a point there. But do we, as members of society, also have to ha- be braver in speaking up so that, it's, so that it can be seen that there is another voice, a counterpoint being put across, so it's not just this very loud uh, minority that are being heard?
4: Hello. Um, what I want to say is you've
3: clearly enjoyed and still are enjoying a long and illustrious career. And I wonder if this kind of episode happened to someone who were... Young and at the start of their career, it would probably be game over. And that makes me rather concerned that for the, I suppose, the range of opinions, the diversity in terms of diversity of thought of the generation of writers that might follow you.
2: You know, yeah, if, if we collect a bunch of... I've already forgotten what he said, no, but so I it mean, doesn't help me. They're not so much questions, but
1: just anything you want to respond to. Respond as you want, that's fine, that's fine. Okay,
2: I, I agree that um, it's actually some kind of miracle that I have survived uh, two major rounds of attack on me. If those people had their way, I would have been taken out. And I never know whether I'm going to write the piece that, that you know... Three's a charm. But uh, I, I do think that uh, younger people who don't have a reputation to trade on, don't have um, a network uh, of, of allies established, uh, they're very easily shot down, and I, I do think it's a, a concern. And, and if I were younger, I don't think I'd be quite so uh, quite so brave about speaking out.
3: Um, David Mamet's um, play Oleana... turned out to be quite prophetic because that was written, I think, in the 1990s. And I certainly used to teach it. Um, I got to the point where I didn't dare teach it, actually. There's a line in there where the the teacher says to the student, um, that's my job, to provoke you. Now, you can't say that anymore. (laughs) That is the job of education. That's the job of debate. And that is and of fundamentally this, uh, of this
2: misunderstood. Of, of this
3: Absolutely. whole weekend. Yeah. 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 And fundamentally misunderstood.
2: I'm, very har- I'm sorry to hear that, uh, that you're not teaching it any longer. Uh, I'm not teaching anymore. Yeah. And that's another story which is oh, interesting yeah. in and of itself. Right, anyway, pass along. You've
1: got the mic. Pass it along to that person. Yeah. Uh,
0: my question's actually about Donald Trump and his fake news stance. I'm wondering what you think about the idea that his fake news stance is like a neo-fascistic attempt to undermine the media who is supposed to hold him to account, or is that a sort of hysterical analysis, and actually he's speaking his mind with a fair grain of truth, and either way, is there a danger inherent in it?
2: Yeah, there is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah. Um,
4: Okay, I think you are really good at filching. Um, I love reading about all characters with all different kinds of perspectives. Um, So I wonder if you could talk practically about
5: how how you step into other people's shoes. And rather than asking writers not to culturally appropriate, do you think us non-writers could learn from some of those techniques about how you
2: get into someone else's mind? Well, I don't know how... In all honesty, I don't know how to answer that question. I'm not quite sure how I do it. I'm never quite sure I do it successfully. I just know that it's important to try. I think that we need to feel brave, not only brave, but also excited by the idea of inhabiting the, the mind of, a, of people who are different. To, to find it challenging and interesting and not just frightening. Okay, thank you.
3: I was very interested to hear your comments about um, the insidiousness of language shift Um, And I think, and how it's it's important, I think just to take it one stage further, there's a long-standing philosophical concept of if you don't have the word, you can't think the thought, and I think that is very, very significant in terms of the language that we all use about ideas. The origins of this new authoritarian ideology are very mystifying to me, earlier forms of authoritarian, whether they were religious conservatism or fascism or Marxism, they at least had the virtue of being very open uh, and and relatively clearly defined in terms of their justification for speech prohibitionism. What do you see as being the locus of all this? I mean, it's very mystifying. So on one hand, we're told they, they support diversity, yet of course they're trying to close down diversity of um, opinion. We're told they're against any kind of borders and yet they're trying to establish safe spaces and positive forms of discrimination which exclude certain people within the society for applying for certain jobs. What, what's going on here in your opinion?
2: I'm confused by it also and one of the things that makes the emergence of this um, militant identity politics peculiar is that it's it is uh, consonant with greater social tolerance than ever before, and I think there may be a connection oddly you know we we now um we now have gay marriage right uh that's an and, and it has uh, majority support in both the united states and and the u k uh in fact increasingly all over the western world uh but somehow, having made that advancement, has created this obsession with transgenderism. Because being for gay rights doesn't mean anything anymore. It's too boring, you know? It's like, ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> right? It's been normalized. Uh, and I, I just somehow I think there is a connection between the fact that we are less bigoted than we used to be and we have made progress in being inclusive. That's another one of those words. And therefore, uh, our uh, virtue test has to become still more stringent because everyone can't belong to the club. I mean, it's, it's partly this weird appetite for enemies.
4: Okay. Um, uh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, I know somebody who's working on a script uh, and it didn't quite work the first time around because it was suggested that because he's a a white male he was holding back from issues around class and race that he wanted to really discuss. So he started again and was encouraged to just absolutely go for it this time. Don't hold back. Go for what you want to say. But there was a suggestion that you might have to, if it does get staged, it might have to be written under a black female pseudonym uh, so that you can, otherwise, you'll, you, know, you might be assassinated. Um, this, anyway, this, it was put to this friend of mine. Um, I wonder what you thought about the ethics of that. Should he stand his ground and say, no, I'm, I'm submitting it as as myself. It's going on as a, the play is written by, by me as a, a white uh, male, but not straight. Um, or should he concede and say, actually, yeah, I'm going to have to write it under a pseudonym, a black female pseudonym at that?
2: Well, I would love to see... Uh, I would love to see that as just a social experiment, you know? Uh, you're... Uh, I think famously Doris Lessing sent a- around her one of her novels under a different name and it was widely rejected. It would be interesting if your if your friend sent it around or sent it sent it a couple places under his own name and sent it a couple other places under a, a black female name and see if there's a difference in response. I, I would just find that fascinating. I'm not actually giving him advice one way or the other, that's up to him, but um, if he were to go through that exercise, I, I would love to, to hear the results. Okay, thanks. Yeah.
0: The sort of conduct that you've been describing as a response to some of your columns uh, is no doubt a, a deliberate attempt to control and repress. It is a form of grassroots totalitarianism. And, of course, all totalitarianism needs a method, a mechanism to enforce. And the enforcement mechanism requires the collusion of, as I think the gentleman up there said, a number of institutions and people. It seems to me that it's those people who are, to a large extent, responsible for the wrongdoing. One wonders what motivation they have for that kind of conduct. But do you agree that it is very important to be as intolerant as possible to those who are tolerant of intolerance?
1: Untangling one's way through that.
4: On that actually very serious note, I mean, how in practical terms do you think we counter this homicidal tendency to take people out because i think you've actually named it as exactly what it is it's about destroying people's careers destroying a lifetime's work and reputation and making it impossible for them to earn their living and effectively drumming them out of town you know it's the old scapegoating attitude but it is really pathological i think and very very dangerous how do we how do we counter this it
2: requires uh, institutional um Institutions sticking to their guns. It's not enough for individuals uh, to be supportive. It's the uh, employers have to stick by their guns. And, um, I mean, there's actually a larger essay that I'm going to be writing for um, Harbors Magazine uh, about uh, what I call erasure. And that is what's happening to people now who um, sin in in the terms of the current orthodoxy is that they are eliminated from the world so that not only are you unemployable, but your previous work is erased. And I find that ex- exceptionally forbidding because it would be bad enough for for me, for example, to uh, suddenly not be able to publish anymore uh, because I've become persona non grata. I wrote that last column that did me in. But it would be even worse... Uh, because I I have a a, a long uh, history of publication behind me, to, to have my books removed from the shelves, and that's the kind of thing that's happening, is that you know Amazon won't won't carry it anymore, c- carry the, the your your work anymore, you know the bookstores won't carry your work anymore, uh, and I I I just think that's horrifying, but I don't you know I don't know how else to push back except for you know Jeff Bezos to not allow that to happen you know don't have don't have Amazon censor people's works uh, according to whether or not um they've been perfectly behaved in their lives in, in 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 according to a very strict criterion i i i don't know what else to say uh i don't think that uh i don't think that just regular people um ha- having uh, uh, having maintained their own sense of reasonableness and proportion I- is good enough. I, I need, for for example, I need Harper Collins to stick by me, period. I, I, I
1: One thing I, I thought recently, or I've concerned myself that might happen, is because, you know, one of the consequences and the fallouts on Me Too, in terms of the kind of remove that person from a film, but they'll never, w- I mean, you know, it's also that's, that, that that's kind of That's what I mean by erasure, yeah. you know? And I th- but I think we are going to start having a bit of that in terms of attitudes because I've heard people saying, Well, you know, but if so and so is transphobic or racist, you know, it's atrocious that they've that they're kind of given credence by having these films shown. Right because you suddenly realise it's no longer just, oh, you've been accused of sexual assault, but actually it's your attitude that not you. <laughs> not I'm saying that you can see that how that could creep in, which is, well, why are those novelists being taught, why is that play being taught, when the attitude of the you know, they've got racist attitude, you know that kind of thing, it's the part of the, the, the post-colonialism discussion as well in universities about who is taught why, right. whether they're pro slavery credentials at that time, the whole debate around Churchill that's happened recently, you know mm. Churchill is now Hitler and therefore anyone who says that they support Churchill is pro-Hitler but in, a serious, in all seriousness as you say, you can just see a sort of thing where you think, oh Churchill's off the Curriculum suddenly never yeah and so on.
2: I mean that is. Well, I I have hewed to this old fashioned notion that there's a difference between the artist and the art. Yeah. Uh, that uh, and and actually this is uh, important to me not simpler as someone who makes art, but perhaps even more importantly as someone who consumes art. And I don't want Woody Allen's movies taken away from me, uh, and. I was irate when uh, Louis C.K.'s previous uh, comedy was uh, taken off streaming services. I love him. You know, okay, fine. I can see why some women wouldn't exactly get off on his, you know, taking his thing out. And he's been pretty seriously embarrassed over that. Uh, But I don't want his work taken away from me. And, And I think this... Notion that, uh, in order for us uh, as arts consumers uh, to enjoy something, it has to have been created by someone who's perfect. I mean, pretty soon we're not going to be watching anything.
1: <laughs> uh, it's going to be really boring. I, I noticed that uh, Richard Bean, the the playwright, recently said that he would been able to, unable to write or stage uh, England People Very Nice, which was a big uh, play at the National a few years ago, which was a critique of um, of some of the kind of orthodoxies around multiculturalism, and I was doing the discussion on it for the National Theatre at the time. There was objections to it at the time, but he just says now he wouldn't be able to write it or stage it. And you think...
2: I'm hearing that all the time now. Yeah,
1: that was kind of the self censorship. You just think... You know, people are actually thinking I can't write on that topic, and then other people are saying we can't have that play on because we've found out that you once tweeted when you were 17 something, which we think is uh, uh, objectionable. You, you, you do think we won't be watching anything interesting? Do you know what I mean? That would be the point. Yes.
4: I wanted to. Um, uh, what did you think about? Uh, uh, we need to be talk about Kevin being filmed and uh, how it came out. It strikes me there's quite a big difference between the novel and the film. You know, just how crisply the um, uh, uh, the mother is written. Uh, 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 whereas the film... I mean, obviously they're different genres and it's, it's somebody else's work. But it's, it worked on a very different level.
2: Yeah, I thought it was a broadly uh, successful film. I didn't involve myself in the creation of it. I would have done a few th- things differently. But in general, uh, it is... At the very least, that it is in no way an embarrassment to be associated with it, and believe me, the way most adaptations work, uh, th- that makes me very fortunate. <laughs> Thanks.
4: Yeah, um, I completely agree with all the points about uh, separating the art from the artist's personal life, and you know, keep on reading Dickens, even if he had some anti-Semitic. Um, things or actually that takes me to my point which is that I do think there's maybe a bit of an exception around uh, the life which has anti-semitism in it um specifically what I'm thinking of is the cult around Wagner that seems to be continuing very unabated so I think well everything else is like oh Churchills a Nazis and uh, um, actually I, I've noticed you know the ring is obviously always sold out there's a scrum for Bayreuth every year it's very trendy among progressives to actually be seen at the ring um, and I just wondered if you think there's anything sort of slightly telling about the Wagnerian exception. I don't think it used to be an exception, but it is now. And to me, it sort of raises the bigger question of, is sort of anti-Semitism a little bit outside of the, you well, know, the there, usual it, rounds of identity? You know, if, you,
2: if you will, there are only certain groups and certain issues that are privileged. and um, And I think your perception is correct that Anti-Semitism is not a an especial a concern of uh, the two generations behind me. Um, I think that uh, part of the it's it, it, it's part of the prejudice. Uh, Jews are seen as wealthy, so they're privileged, and they look white, so they get lumped in with everyone else. Um, diversity only concern for diversity it's only concern for very particular groups and not others and Jews have got got left out of it and that's why you know anti-semitism has been allowed to run rampant in the labor party because nobody cares and then it gets you know the it's uh it's doubly reinforced that we don't care about the Jews because they're associated with prosecuting persecuting the Palestinians and that's a very fashionable cause to care about um And uh, so, I I think it's a kind of double whammy there. Uh, But it it has been very interesting that uh, nobody, the younger people in the identity politics, uh, when usually you give them another group to get all upset about, they just leap at it. Um, But on this one, it's like, it doesn't interest me.
1: I I also suspect that a lot of the younger people who are interested in uh, identity politics, haven't kind of worked out the Wagner connection yet, which is, is a shame because actually I want them to have listened to Wagner, but then I'm frightened that if they listen to Wagner, they might work out that actually he's an anti-Semite and call for the stopping of the ring being shown. So it's a kind of mixed... Uh, they,
4: they know that uh, it's wish- trendy, I think. Yeah, it's, no, it's, I know. It's, it's super I,
0: I, chic to go to yeah. Wagner.
4: Yeah.
1: Okay, we've only got time for a couple more. So there's... Uh, oh, oh, I see.
4: When you spoke about uh, being taken out um, and you, you moved on to talking about erasure... And a word that popped into my mind was that of shunning. And it seems to me that there is a a religious urge behind this. And the the, the old sacrificial victim was there to cleanse society of its ills. And I I just wonder what you think about the religious dimension of what we're seeing.
2: Oh, I, I definitely think that we're talking about a faith. And only certain people are allowed in the church. And after all, religions have always defined themselves not just by uh, positives like belief, but also about who who is an unbeliever. And and that's what a lot of this is about. Okay,
1: thank you. Uh, Yes, and then you, and then...
5: uh, Um, Just to go back to the point of anti-Semitism, it's very clear that a lot of young people kind of disregard this as a topic to talk about when we bring up anything to do with... um, ethnic minorities, or when we talk about people who face discrimination. Um, I'm a student, I'm 17, I'm Jewish, and uh, I'm white, and I support Israel. So um, a lot of that controversy comes up, and people seem to like look at me and be like, well, you're white first and Jewish later. And I kind of take that as a, no, I'm Jewish and I'm white, so what? But yeah, it, I think in this day and age, people see your colour before they see anything else behind you. And I think it's completely wrong, because... A lot of my Jewish characteristics dictate my personality. But they're like, no, that's because you're white.
2: Well, I mean, that's what I've said about um, identity politics in general is that, ironically, it's making us more racist, certainly more aware of race in a very negative way. Uh, and it, put, it puts race to the fore. It does become the first thing that you, you see in someone. And, um, and it's worse. That, that, that's always been an element but now I think it's getting a lot worse. And that's a perverse effect of this movement.
5: Like it's negative to have your identity.
2: But so um, it's, 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 yeah. it's interesting. I, I, I,
1: one of my friends actually said to me last year that he's never felt so self-conscious of his black skin. And he said that in relation to either of his... Uh, colleagues who are black because he said basically now I feel as though like I'm black whereas actually I just thought I was an interesting guy and uh, he'd been involved in anti-racist politics for years so he's not stupid about and you know racism but he just said that suddenly my blackness is what people are interested in and that's amongst ourselves and it's a horrible way to be because I'm self-conscious of it.
3: Just a brief question um do you think the means of media and artistic works these days change your attitude towards it? You know, Wagner's dead, his work's out of copyright, he's not benefiting from a royalty to that. Do you think that is one issue where you could have someone still benefiting from a royalty, so they're still being paid, even though... Does that change anything for you, the fact that someone might still be benef- benefiting commercially or lifestyle-wise, whereas some might not be because it's, the piece of art's been sold, the work's out of copyright, or some of that no- notion?
2: I... I uh... I'm certainly concerned about my own life and my own legacy, and it, its I still care about my own livelihood. Uh, yeah, well, y- being dead offers a number of protections.
0: <laughs> Hi, so I was listening to Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History, and one of his episodes in his podcast basically states this kind of theory where um, so he used the example of Australia and how Australia voted in a woman, a female prime minister. Um, and then following that, loads of people within the Australian government were really sexist to her, but then disregarded their sexism because they said, we can't be sexist because we have a female prime minister. So I wanted to know what you thought about that sort of like concept.
2: I don't have any thought on that at present, but I do have uh, one thing I want to say before yeah, we wrap up. Claire, you mentioned uh, at the start that there are a lot of younger people who don't fall into lockstep with this uh, kind of strict uh, ideology. Um, And I believe that is true. I think that uh, a very small number of people uh, are, are dominating this conversation on the hard left and misrepresenting their generation. And I, uh, I would like to encourage all of you uh, under 30 who who don't necessarily buy uh, this kind of thinking and are, are, are independent thinkers, have your own ideas. Uh, please put yourselves out there and please represent your generation I think that uh, in some ways this conversation does your generation a disservice. And I would love to read much more reasonable and unorthodox thinking from younger writers.
1: Thank you very much.